Gospel according to Luke chapter 9. Glory to you, O Lord. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way they entered a village of the Samaritans to, to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those of my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. There are three distinct parts in that gospel reading, as I read it anyway, um, including in that last part some words that sound, well, kind of bafflingly harsh, right? We're just going to dive into these three parts one at a time and we'll see what we can see. The first distinct part is the very first word of our reading where Jesus says, Luke writes, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This verse is what turning points in a story sound like. Prior to Luke 9:51, Jesus has been doing all the things he's been doing uh, around the area of the Sea of Galilee, which is not only not the center of the world, that would have been Rome in those days, it is also not even the center of the comparatively small Jewish world, that would have been Jerusalem in those days. Galilee, on the other hand, was on the far northern reaches of the Jewish world and way on the wrong side of the tracks as far as Jews in Jerusalem were concerned. But it was where Jesus was from and it was where he began his ministry, the first two or three years of his ministry. Luke doesn't exactly say. He was healing, preaching, teaching, ushering in, he said, something so not the empires and kingdoms of this world that it needed an entirely new name. He called it the kingdom of God. And he described it. And he demonstrated what life is like in it. And what it's like, it turns out, was nothing like the forceful and coercive power of, and fearful power of powers like Rome, but rather the fearless power of God's healing love and God's tender mercy. Not just for the powerful, but rather and even, even especially for the powerless and the poor, those who did live on the wrong side of the tracks and the wrong side of the border too. And so he started in Galilee, just north and a little east of the middle of nowhere, to usher in and welcome the world's nobodies to the kingdom of God. Then comes Luke 9.51, 
When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. This is not a casual, let's just go that direction for fun and see how this goes. No, he set his face is a, is a phrase of deliberate intent and resolve and commitment, oftentimes used in contexts of anticipated resistance and conflict. The phrase could have been used accurately. In other words, for example, in June of 1944, as troops crossed the English Channel, their faces set on the beaches of Normandy. That's what this phrase is like. Jesus here has set his face to Jerusalem, where there is a battle to be fought, and he knows it, and where the enemy the enemy in this case whose name is not Germany and its allies Japan and Italy but rather sin and its allies death and deceit. That enemy is bunkered down and fully armed and waiting for him and he absolutely does know this. Can you picture his face in this moment? It's the face of one who will do all that needs to be done even if it kills him, which he had told his disciples just earlier he was fully aware it would. Nevertheless, face set, here he now heads toward Jerusalem. Where now comes the second part of our reading for today as going south from Galilee toward Jerusalem takes him and his followers toward Samaria and a Samaritan village. And you know what was in that Samaritan village? Samaritans! <laughs> Jews hated Samaritans. Most hated Samaritans so much that if they were going from Galilee to Jerusalem, they would take the long way, going miles out of their way in order to avoid Samaria and its Samaritans entirely. But not Jesus. He sets his face toward Jerusalem via Samaria. Because why? Because it turns out there are no us's and them's in this kingdom. Jesus is coming to bring for God's love and mercy are not just for us and people like us and people who like us and people whom we like. No, God's kingdom intends its borders to be wide open for it is open to all. Of course, Jews didn't just hate Samaritans, Samaritans hated, hated Jews too. And so in our reading, it's the Samaritans who locked down their walls and they wouldn't let Jesus in. And his disciples, James and John, said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus said, you can do that. <laughs> That's not what Jesus said. Actually, the prophet Elijah back in the day had done that. And Jesus, being who he was, I imagine, could have done that. I imagine he could have empowered and blessed James and John to do it for him, which he didn't do. It says, rather, he rebuked them. This is a strong word as well. Jesus in Luke rebuked demons. He rebuked diseases and they fled. He rebuked raging winds and waves and they calmed. He rebuked the devil himself and he slithered away whence he came. And now he rebukes two of his own because they're not acting like his own. 
They're acting like the world. Jesus, remember, has come in to usher in the kingdom of exactly not the world and its ways, but the kingdom of God and God's ways. Only just a couple of chapters ago in Galilee, he had preached a sermon describing those ways for his followers. Don't just love your friends, he said. Anybody can do that, for goodness sakes. Love your enemies. That's where the rubber hits the road in the kingdom of God's highways. And when someone curses you, he'd said, don't curse back or hit back or tweet back or post back. That's just acting like everybody else all over again. But you, he said, you're my followers. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Great teachers, of course, don't just teach with the things they say, but also with the things they do that are consistent with the things that they say. And Jesus was as great a teacher as the world has ever known, and his actions were completely consistent with his words. And actions, of course, as wisdom knows, speak louder than words. So he doesn't bless James and John's request to go off on the Samaritans. Rather, he goes on. The Samaritans cursed him and his party and his enterprise, but he didn't curse back, and he reigned his party in. After all, he is on his way to Jerusalem, where his death on the cross will be for the forgiveness of Samaritans and their sins, too. Which takes us to that final section of this text, which is the one that sure seems, on first reading anyway, actually on second reading, too to be bafflingly harsh. We pick it up in Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Did you? And we need to remember that Jesus apparently was a homeless guy. Don't know if he ever held up a sign, but people fed him. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So... And by so, I mean, wait, what? Farewells and funerals aren't allowed in this kingdom that you're bringing in? Love your enemies, but turn your back on your loved ones? What's up with that, right? Well, let's say our Pastor Sarah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, this is, the, this is the part of the sermon you wrestle with, but... Um, Maybe don't even entirely decide that you get it right. But for starters, we do need to bear in mind that Jesus is not talking here about being saved, about being welcomed into this kingdom he is bringing and one day finally and fully and at last will bring. That, your place in that kingdom is a gift. That is grace. All the work done by him, the entire price paid by him too, which is why he has his set face set toward Jerusalem, that cross that's waiting there. So he's not talking about being saved, loved and forgiven and welcomed by him. He's talking about being a disciple. 
talking about following him. He's talking about deciding that I'm going to be someone whose faith is not just words, but action too. And what's going on here, I think, is that Jesus wants naivete to play no part in a decision like that. He wants those who would follow him to know that life with him will not be a summer of Bible camp. Life with him will be rather something that requires discipleship and that requires words put into actions. And words put into actions require commitment. And commitment, when it is the real thing, will at some point cost you something. It'll require sacrifice. And sacrifice, in order not to be a waste, requires priorities properly in place. For to make the kinds of sacrifices he's talking about, which in his case and in the case of James and John and the rest of them too, will ultimately be the sacrifice of everything. Sacrifices like that, if made for priorities that ultimately aren't worth prioritizing, are not acts of discipleship, but rather misguided and wasted and often even ultimately tragic zeal. Proof, look at the one, actually the many, actually the countless, whose ultimately highest priority was, for example, money, for which they sacrificed their families and or their values and or their souls. And too, surely, let's be clear, surely there's some hyperbole, hyperbole going on here, right? This isn't the only time Jesus does this. There's some exaggeration to make a point. Jesus doesn't mean, it's goofy to think that he means that if you, for example, want to follow him, then you need to leave your job. It's required. And your house, it's required. Your family, it's required. By the way, you can't even tell them you're leaving. It's required. And also skip family funerals from then on. But he nevertheless is saying, including to you and me, that though many things in life, things like family, are important and are meant to be, and are meant to be cherished as such. Nevertheless, even they, even loved ones, even matters of life and death aren't ultimately as important as what he has set his face toward Jerusalem to do for the sake of God's saving love for you and your family, and for all. After all, a family funeral without the cross and Easter is nothing more than an occasion to gather around memories, which are often fine things. But the only way they can leave you looking is backwards. Funerals with the cross and Easter, on the other hand, are occasions not just for looking backwards with memories, but also looking forward in faith and hope. Nothing is as important as what he has set his face to Jerusalem to do. Speaking of looking forward, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back, Jesus said, is fit for the kingdom of God. The imagery, of course, is agricultural. 
and of course in pre-GPS in tractor cab times. And so in those days, if one was plowing with a team of oxen or such and looked back, he might well see straight lines, but the very act of looking back will assure that the coming lines will be drifting off course. If you need a non-agricultural image, think of a singer. It's no good wondering whether you sang the previous page right. Keep your eyes on the pages that's coming up in the next line. Or think of a family vacation. The map you need is the one that tells you where you go next, not the one that tells you where you've been. Of course, on our vacations and in our tractor cabs these days, we do have GPS to guide us, disciples, not to trivialize, but I think Jesus is telling us that today's text that we have GPS too. It's just that he's not talking about a global positioning system whose voice is the voice of Siri or some such and whose face is a screen. Rather, what disciples have is God's positioning system whose voice is the voice of Jesus and whose face is set to Jerusalem, not to show us the way to Disney World, but rather to show us the way to and the ways of the kingdom of God. And nothing, well, I mean, if Jesus is to be believed anyway, nothing is more important or as, as important, nothing, as that. A time management expert speaking to a group of business students put a clear gallon-sized jar in front of them and he added a big rock and then on top of that some not quite so big but pretty decent sized stones until they reached the brim and they couldn't get any more stones in. He said, is the jar full? The class said, yes. He said, really? Then he reached under the table for a bucket of pea gravel and he poured that in and he shook the jar and it settled in between the gaps and the stones and, and, and he said, now is the jar full? And somebody said, I'm guessing probably not. He said, exactly. And he reached under for a bucket of sand, which he dumped in and shook. And the sand found its way into the gaps between the gravel. Now is the jar full? He said, no, the class shouted. Exactly, he replied, as he reached under the table for a pitcher of water and poured it into the jar until it was filled to the brim. So what's the point, he said. Eager to please, one student raised her hand and said, the point is that no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can get anything else in. <laughs> oh my goodness no, said the speaker. <laughs> that is not the point. The point is this, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. In the waters of baptism, the waters of your baptism, Jesus said, I love you, you are mine, you are forever mine, follow me. Walk with me, and in doing so, and saying so, he put the biggest rock there is into the font, the wellspring, the jar of your life. And there it is. So, today, tomorrow, the days after that too, 
that biggest rock there is, right in its place. Where are you being called to plow?